Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Catherine Oliver. This episode is part two of a two-part feature. If you haven't already, you can listen to part one by visiting iTunes, Stitcher, Bloomberg.org, or SoundCloud. At last month's Our Ocean Conference in Indonesia, UN Special Envoy for Climate Action, Michael R. Bloomberg, announced additional support for oceans. For Bloomberg, this investment marks an important $86 million expansion of Bloomberg's Vibrant Oceans Initiative. Since 2011, we have invested $69 million in ocean protection efforts. Launched in 2014, the Vibrant Oceans Initiative has supported key partners, Oceana and Rare, in reforming both local and industrial fishing practices and protecting critical marine areas in top fishing nations, namely Brazil, Chile, and the Philippines, where partners have seen 390% growth in coastal fish populations at Phase 1 sites and where more than 1 million square miles have been protected. The additional funds will support Phase 2 of this initiative. In the second part of their conversation, Dr. Steve Box, Senior Vice President of Fish Forever at Rare, and Melissa Wright from the Bloomberg Philanthropies Environment Team discuss decentralizing decision-making around fisheries, local leadership, and how to shift norms to ensure future food security. Rare is working with local governments, organizations, and residents in coastal communities to implement more sustainable fishing management systems with local fishers in mind. Reforms include exclusive fishing rights for coastal fishers in exchange for creating protected areas where fish are able to reproduce unharmed. There are 12 million small-scale fishers that operate within 15 kilometers from shore, concentrated largely on the coasts of the developing world. Fishers are catching relatively small amounts of fish destined mainly for local markets. Their gear is basic and their resources are limited, but their numbers are enormous, with 90% of the world's fisher and fish worker population operating in small-scale fishing, and about half of the world's total fish catch coming from these fishers. Stack them up, and their impact on catch statistics is impressive— if measured fully. By empowering communities with control over their fisheries, RARE seeks to inspire stewardship to manage local waters more sustainably and provide a successful community-focused model for nations and for the world. Listen to their conversation now. Thanks for being here, Dr. Box. May I call you Steve? You may call me Steve, and thank you very much for the invitation. (laughs) We know each other well. Uh, We've been working together for a couple of years now on the Vibrant Oceans Initiative Program with RARE as one of our lead partners. It's been fantastic to see the progress that RARE has made in protecting coastal fisheries. And I'm excited to to dig into the data a little bit more today. Me too. I'm all about the numbers. (laughs) (laughs) You and I were in Indonesia together in January of this year, and we visited an area called Wakatobi. And we had the privilege of sitting in on a meeting of the local Fishers Forum. And they talked a lot about how they 
had worked with Rare on establishing protected areas and areas that no fishing was allowed to allow for one of the key species to rebound, which is the the rabbit fish. What I took away from that meeting was really the sense of cohesion among the fisher community. The women and other people who participate in the processing of fish were also participated in the meeting. And I loved being able to look around the building that we were in and see the posters of the different species. And they actually brought their own data. They were so proud to show the progress that they made and the data that was ticking upward for that species. That's just one experience that I've had in witnessing what Rare does on the ground and in the water. Do you have a favorite story or an anecdote about an impactful Rare community? Absolutely. In fact, there's so many stories. At the moment, we're working with over 250 communities, and everyone has a story like the one you saw in in Wakatobi. And actually, just to build on that story... Mm Uh, the the rabbit fish, which is culturally important, it's it's kind of the the equivalent of of uh, the Thanksgiving turkey. Mm. It's used in ceremonies, but it's also a really important food fish. They'd chosen that as the focal species for management. They had set up these fully protected reserves that they managed locally, and they were seeing results happen really quickly because that type of fish grows very quickly, it reproduces a lot, and so they were seeing the benefits of their own efforts Mm -hmm. within a a couple of years, and that was really circling back into the community, so the women we were talking to were saying how they were seeing improved sales. They were able to sell more fish, they were making more money, and again, they were really starting to to see the benefits of their own activity. Mm -hmm. And I just got back from the Philippines and visiting some of the communities there, We went to a a community called Pilar, and we weren't looking specifically at the fishery in that case. We were looking at at savings clubs that have been set up, and we were talking with this incredible group of 25 women who were working together to save money from the fishery. So when their their husbands and, and they themselves were going out fishing and then selling the fish, instead of using all of the money on day-to-day expenses, they'd come together and formed this savings club which could just save a portion for the future. And it was incredibly inspiring to listen to the stories of what they were saving for and how the club, through that social network, was also helping them if there was an emergency. One lady was talking about how her house had burnt down and she was living in the church and the group was helping her rebuild her life. And it was just this incredible, impactful story. And I would say that's kind of a core piece of, of what Rare does. It's not, it's not just about the fish. It's not just about coral reefs. Mm-hmm. It's about the people that depend on them. Right. And how do you build a solution that really helps their local economy? It helps a sense of social cohesion, how well they work together, how they can solve these incredibly complex problems by working together, by shifting from thinking individually or just about your own household to thinking about the community and what's collectively good. Not to go from what's going well to what's going terribly, but (laughs) I have heard from some of these fishing communities just the trouble that some of these coastal areas are facing, whether it's from overfishing, destructive fishing, from coastal pollution. There are just lots of threats to the natural resource, but also to the livelihoods of these people. Tell me a little bit more about the the kind of crisis that the coastal fishers are facing and what the opportunities are to scale the type of work that RARE is doing. Now, that's a great question because 
coastal areas and, and the oceans in general are under an incredible amount of pressure. There was a, a study released very recently explaining how nearly all of the world's oceans are now impacted by human activities, including overfishing, the effects of climate change, coastal pollution, and coastal communities, the ones that are living right on the shore, are right at that the apex of the problem. They have the impacts of, of pollution right off the shore, both from agricultural runoff or sediment or mm -hmm. uh, sewage. And they're also fishing issues, so the overlapping of industrial fishing, these bigger boats that are coming closer to shore and essentially stripping out uh, coastal resources, their own fishing pressure that's cumulative on top of that. Mm -hmm. And all of those issues are degrading some of the most critical habitats in the sea, coral reefs, seagrass beds, mangrove forests. And without those habitats, those essential fish habitats, you start losing the productivity of our oceans. Mm -hmm. And that is the gloomy future unless we solve that problem. And because coastal communities are right in the intersection of those problems and the use of those resources, it's an obvious place to start. They've got to be the source of that solution. And so to kind of tick off some of the, the ways you could solve that, separating out industrial commercial fishing from coastal community-based fisheries. So can you keep these commercial boats out from coastal waters and really prioritize the communities for access to and use of those mm -hmm. coastal resources? And with that right, bring a trade-off that you get the right, but you also have to have stewardship. You have to be managing these areas. You can't just exclude industrial fishing and then boost small-scale community-based fisheries to occupy that space. You've got to be building the, the relevant management with those communities to protect, conserve, and sustainably use those resources. So there's an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Then by building that management group, the decision-making bodies within local communities and local governments, you can also start using that same community cohesion decision-making to solve some of the other issues. So could you expand that to solve land use issues for sedimentation? Could you expand that to be more aware of direct impacts into the sea, such as plastics and solid waste disposal, mm -hmm. about sewage? Mm -hmm. So we're not working on those quite yet, but the the building of capacity within those communities, linking the priorities of, of coastal communities to local government, mm -hmm. and then linking those to national government can really start shaping how you can solve all of these problems. One of the innovative new ways that RARE is working is by beginning to link mayors of coastal communities and begin to organize their activities around coastal protection and prioritizing small-scale fishery improvement. I loved our trip to Honduras when we got to meet one of the mayors and sit in his office and hear about what he was doing for his community. And one of the things that he emphasized was building the capacity and educating the youth 
youth and bringing them into the community problem-solving set rather than just relying on national government to solve or, you know, private sector to come in with a solution, but really thinking about how the people in those communities can learn more about what they have and have more contact with the governance aspect of coastal resource management. Can you say a little bit more? We love mayors here at Bloomberg Philanthropies. Can you say more about what your plans are for building up local leadership? Absolutely. The the role of mayors has been critical to the success so far, but it's also fundamental to, to where we're going in the future. The mayor that we met in, in Honduras, Mayor Spurgeon Miller, he's the mayor of a small island uh, called Guanaja. It's off the North Caribbean coast of Honduras. And they have a population of about 8,000 people. And I'd been working with him previously. And when I joined Rare and really saw the power of connecting communities really strongly to local leadership, building up the capacity of of local governments, of, of building leadership within the mayors to solve and really address these overfishing problems and, and protection of coral reefs. I introduced that idea back to Mayor Miller and said, we should think about forming a network here. Your leadership is, is incredible for your island. You've started to really listen to the, the fishing communities. There were six different communities around this island. You helped them establish fully protected uh, reserves. Uh, you've banned plastics on the island in terms of plastic bags and straws. You're really trying to promote the island as a center for ecotourism, for green tourism and green growth. And this is amazing, but you could be inspiring other mayors. Could you now go forth and, and meet your colleagues and your peers and see if you could inspire change in, in the neighboring municipalities? And it was incredible to, to see him take up that challenge and go and do it. And now there's actually a network of mayors across the North Shore of Honduras, now spreading into Guatemala. And they've all aligned on those priorities about listening to the needs of of fishers, about establishing fully protected reserves, giving rights to their fishers to fish in in municipal waters, Mm -hmm. forming local management. It's just this incredible spread of this idea. And this is exactly the same approach that Rare was taking in, in the Philippines. A great area we've been working in is the Tanyon Strait in central Philippines. And again, that was forming these networks of mayors to align these priorities so it's not just a solo effort. You're not alone in leadership, that you've actually got a whole network of aligned leaders all moving in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And that can become incredibly powerful at a national level when you've got multiple mayors all saying, this is a priority for my constituency, this is why we're doing it, this is why it's part of our, our development plan at a local level, this should also be part of the national development plan. This should really reinforce at a provincial or state level and at a national level where we're going as a country. Mm-hmm. And we're, again, we're really seeing that in the Philippines where the national development plan now highlights the importance of communities in solving overfishing issues, of establishing managed access, so the way you manage coastal waters and reserves and really linking that to community empowerment. Mm -hmm. And that's embedded now in the National Development Plan of the country. Mm -hmm. And you have these mayors reading in their approach going, ooh, this is exactly what we're doing. So it's great to see that alignment between national policy and local implementation. And what types of things can national governments invest in to improve the livelihoods of coastal fishers? So I think the 
one of the most important things that governments can be investing in immediately is actually good data. The small-scale fisheries, they're only small in name. They're an enormous productive sector of the economy globally. And they've been kind of labeled small because the boats that are being used are smaller than the industrial and commercial fishing boats. But people may, and including national governments, may misconstrue that small means, uh, well, less important, maybe it's a little insignificant. There's also the, the idea of an artisanal fishery. It sounds uh, boutique. boutique, quaint. It, it doesn't sound like it's one of the most important suppliers of food for the world. That's not what jumps to mind when someone says artisanal or small-scale fisheries. So helping governments recognise that this is an incredibly important productive sector, having good fisher registration systems so they know how many people are dependent on that resource, uh, collecting good production data so they know how much fish is actually being extracted by that type of fishery and where it's going. Is it feeding coastal communities? Is it feeding inland or highland communities? There's an incredible trade in fish domestically and regionally that is all part of the informal economy or informal trading systems, so it's never really recorded by governments. Really emphasizing that they need to be collecting this type of data and that there's now very simple ways to do that. And then looking at how do you decentralize decision-making around fisheries. Again, a lot of effort in fisheries management has been centralized within national governments. They've been prioritizing high-value commercial species like tuna and other things, and, and that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of uh, infrastructure and ports and big boats, so it's an obvious place for governments to manage. But small-scale fisheries, coastal fisheries, require a different type of management. It's very hard to manage tens of thousands of communities and, and millions of fishers from a central position. So recognizing that you can devolve management powers down to the local level, uh, local governments and, and provincial or state governments, that's a real priority. You, you need to do that in order to solve the problem. Uh, and then recognizing that coastal fishers and their communities need explicit rights. So making policy commitments that you recognize this productive sector, they need rights of access. Again, these communities are often some of the, the most disenfranchised or marginalized, both by geography and political voice, because no one really knew they were the forgotten fisheries. No one really knew how important those types of fisheries were. Over the last kind of 15 years, there's been a lot of information being collected by scientists doing catch reconstruction of of these fisheries and working out quite how important and how valuable mm -hmm. this sector is. And to give you an example, globally, there's an estimate that it's small-scale fisheries, the unreported portion of that catch is about $10 billion a year that's just not recorded. Wow, incredible. So it's, it's an incredible amount of money that's just not in included in, in national government's um, projections of, of, of GDP. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about small-scale fisheries and the impacts on local communities and the countries that they're nested within. Talk to me a little bit more about the global impact of small-scale fisheries recovery. How can this help meet the Sustainable Development Goals or other global goals like the Paris Climate Agreement? Small-scale fisheries are 
under-recognized globally as being a, a really important part of solving some of the critical challenges facing developing countries to help achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, the ACHI targets, and mm -hmm. the Convention on Biodiversity. And the reason why countries, by addressing overfishing in small-scale fisheries and really helping to solve this problem, can contribute to their SDG targets is because there's so many kind of factors within a small-scale fishery. If you can reduce overfishing, enable fish to recover, you start to contribute to the goals of life in water. You start to protect critical habitats, so you start contributing to your commitments under the Convention on Biodiversity. But more than that, fish are an essential part of food security globally, in, especially in countries like Indonesia or the Philippines. In Indonesia, 60% of animal protein comes from wild-caught fish. That's an incredible amount of protein that the country requires just to, to feed its people. And by not addressing overfishing, every year we have less fish to feed people. So you've got to invest in, in turning the tide on that overfishing problem for food supply. But then in terms of employment, coastal fisheries employ about 85% of all fishers in the world. So it's in terms of employment, far more important than commercial and industrial fisheries. So they're catching about half of all the wild-caught fish for human consumption. They're employing, in, in terms of fishing, but also in that post-harvest, drying, salting, selling. There's about 110 million people employed directly through small-scale fisheries. So just ignoring the importance of this means that the countries can't solve some of their most basic sustainable development goals in terms of alleviating poverty, in terms of food supply, and then life in water. Then stepping one step forward, all of this economy or, or the majority of small-scale fisheries sit in the informal economy. It's cash-based, they're transactions that never get formally recorded, and the money isn't hitting formal financial institutions. So again, it's not counting to the GDP of a country because it's, it's not being formally mm -hmm. registered. If you could work on shifting communities into a more formal economy, enabling people to, to save, enabling people to take formal debt, in having that transaction recorded by local and national government, that actually contributes to achieving sustainable development goals as well, giving people financial identity. Maybe we can close, and if you have any anecdote that you'd like to share that illustrates what Rare does in the world, I'd love to hear it. So imagine, if you will, a couple of people in a small boat. They've gone out, they've been fishing all day, they've caught you know, maybe 20, 30 pounds of fish, and they're bringing it back to shore, and they're selling it to the local buyer, and they're being paid in cash, and that cash is supporting their, their home, their households, it's supporting the education of their children, it's feeding their families, they're saving a little bit if they can to improve their house. It's exactly the same life as everyone else on the planet. It's the same concerns of how do we make enough money to, to feed ourselves, how do we make enough money for our families to really help the future of our children, how do we improve uh, our lot in the world. The difference is that when those two people go out fishing, they have no certainty about what they're gonna catch. 
They don't know whether they're going to come home with five pounds of fish, no fish, a hundred pounds of fish. When most people around the world go to work, they know more or less what they're going to earn at the end of the day. I think one of the most important things for people to recognize in these types of fisheries is the uncertainty of going out hunting, essentially. You're hunting fish and you don't really know what you're going to catch. And that provides a lot of risk to the fishers themselves. That level of uncertainty means that people have to fish as hard as possible to catch as much fish as possible to secure their income for the day, for the week. And so I would say the most important part of Rare's work is to give people greater certainty, enable them to be a part of a, a more secure future, give people rights so that they really take ownership of the, the problem, both individually and as a community, that they're involved in that solution. When those two people in a boat are going fishing, they're fishing in grounds that they know that that's part of, of their community's area, that the reserve, that they're part of that protection, that they're involved in protecting that, not just for the, the amazing reef that may be below the water, but because they recognize that by protecting that area, that's sustaining their future, that the fish that are growing under that protection will eventually spill over into their fishing grounds. Being able to connect up the, the individual actions of people in a community to protect areas, to really recognize that when they're fishing, they have a responsibility not just to catch as much as possible, but actually to safeguard the future. Because if everyone takes everything today, then their children, their grandchildren will be in much worse financial and economic situations. Rare can tell these stories, tell these narratives with communities, explaining their role, providing them the data and the evidence that they need to see that what they're doing, the short-term sacrifices that they're making by not catching as much, by not fishing illegally, by not using destructive fishing gears that may catch more, but longer term they're causing irreparable harm to reefs and other areas, that they recognize that they're all part of a solution mm -hmm. and that they're not just showing that themselves through their own actions, but they're talking to their neighbors, they're talking to their friends, they're talking to other fishers and they're saying, I'm a responsible fisher. I do these four things that make me responsible. You should too. Mm -hmm. And shifting that social norm that it's not acceptable to be a destructive fisher, mm -hmm. that it's not acceptable to fish undersized fish or to take pregnant crabs, that we can shift society so that everyone is reinforcing responsible behavior. That's an incredible way of building a, a solution that will last. Well, it's a remarkable thing to see a solution like the one that Rare is spreading across the world work so well and so quickly. We're proud to be Rare's partner and looking forward to visiting even more coastal communities and seeing the small-scale fishers in action. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And obviously, the, the support of Bloomberg Philanthropies is fundamental to the work that we're doing around the world. And we're looking forward to, to working with you long into the future. Thank you. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Dr. Steve Box for joining us. Visit rare.org, that's R-A-R-E.org, for more information. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data podcast. This episode was produced by Electra Colivas, Melissa Wright, Ivy Lee, music by Mark Pirro, and special thanks to Eric Shepard. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.